it's not all gloomy the negative stories that we hear on a daily basis all over the world and especially in america someone says the world is a better place than we can imagine it's better than what we hear on a daily basis this is now tell us i'm your host anthony Mwerore. at now tell us we have guests come and tell us stories they come and inspire us they come and educate us on a topic uh, or they just come and share something that they are passionate about and today we have a great guest with us his name is honorable paul johnson he's gonna be here shortly he's gonna tell us how the world is better than what we actually think and without taking one more minute i'm going to ask you to join me as we go together to meet paul here we go Hello, Paul. Hello, Anthony. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How about you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Wonderful. Honorable Paul Johnson. That's how we call you. And I am curious, and maybe the viewer or the listener is curious to know, how does that name come to be uh, Honorable Paul Johnson? So I was mayor of the city called the city of Phoenix, which is okay. the fifth largest city in the United States. Mm. Um, and in the United States, they apply honorable to mayors, past mayors, governors, past governors, judges, presidents, mostly the executive or judicial branches of government. Uh, you get the honorable title, but Paul will be just fine for me. And how far back was that? Uh, so I was mayor. I became mayor when I was 29 years old. Um, mm. The uh, the United States, you know, is just a, a place of a, a great amount of opportunity, and, and young people have uh, incredible opportunities here as well. I became mayor at 29 years old uh, in a city that was at the time I think we were the sixth largest city. We became the fifth largest city. That would have been in 1994, 95, right in those years. <laughs> I was just finishing high school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you're and so I, yes. I feel like I've definitely worn out a few good bodies at this point. Yeah, but you're looking still young. I can tell, and uh, well, we, we can we can see you're still young. You still got some some road to cover. Let's <laughs> hope so. Yeah, and you come and tell us that the world is a better place than we think. Actually, I was looking at your profile, and you're known as the optimistic American. Uh, 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 that's, that's how your description is on the pro profile. How's that? How did you take that name, that title? Well, um, I, I think all of us, especially in Western liberal democracies, places like Greece and Europe, the United States, Japan, um, you know, it, one of the blessings that we have is a free media. One of the blessings that we have are uh, free elections. But mm -hmm. inside of those things are people who benefit greatly from trying to tell you how bad it is, right? They're, they're, you know, if you watch the nightly news, 
they're going to give you a description of all the things that are going wrong. And, and by the way, it hasn't always been this way. You know, I remember when I was a little boy, when I was nine years old, the United States was uh, 1969 was going to the moon. Like I would run home every day to watch television. I would watch these astronauts that were uh, getting on the ship. I knew the names of all of them. I knew the names of their spouses. I knew some of the names of the engineers. I watched the takeoff of this particular uh, uh, Apollo 11 and then watched the spaceship turn around in space and that's actually, actually laying there. Every mm -hmm. single channel covered it. But if mm -hmm. you watch television in the United States today, you'd really only watch two things. You would watch on the more liberal channels, them talking about the Capitol break-in, or on the more conservative channels, uh, what they say are millions of people coming across our border. Now, neither one of those things are completely false, mm -hmm. but they're perspective, right? And mm -hmm. if, if you even look at like, uh, I don't know, six months ago or so, I was watching television and it was just both stations for a whole week were covering those two topics, trying to appeal to their own audience. Well, on Thursday, guy named William Shatner, who some people will remember was Captain Kirk on Star Trek, actually mm -hmm. got to a real spaceship and went into outer space on a privately funded flight. Mm -hmm. They didn't cover the takeoff. They didn't cover uh, all the intricacies of what happened because they were too busy covering the negatives. Yeah. What happened is the news media has become exceptional at understanding what we call the, the amygdala hijack. The amygdala mm -hmm. hijack is that if I can terrify you about the other political party or about people that you are opposed to or about people who are inside of government. If I can terrify you, it engages the amygdala, which is a much more reptilian portion of the brain. Mm -hmm. And that overpowers, it hijacks the neocortex where rational thought comes from, where optimism comes from, where love and art, uh, art and creativity come from. But once you do that, once the news station does that, you, you become so terrified that you, you not only can't operate rationally, even more importantly, what they care about is that you're terrified so you'll watch again tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So our political candidates are constantly giving us bad news. Political parties are giving us bad news. The nightly news is giving us the bad news. And then if you go on social media, there are all these rabbit holes that they try to take you down to try yeah. to feed the same thing. My point to you is, if you look at the data, if instead of looking at the media, if you look at the data, Mm -hmm. All the data is clear. The world has gotten a lot better, not only in the last 10 years, but in the last 50 years and in the last 500 years. We've mm -hmm. reduced child immortality. Uh, we have reduced illiteracy. We've reduced uh, uh, teenage pregnancies and young teenage moms. It, it, it's not that the world's perfect, but if you look at all of the data, the data points tell us that the yeah. world is moving in the right direction. Now, the question, I think, is why? Well, back in the 1940s, most of the world had destroyed itself based upon World War II, right? Mm -hmm. And in that destruction, um, we had to go out and build a new world order. And we did, right? Yeah. The, it, our European partners, the United States, even the people who are our enemies, Japan and Germany, right? We, mm -hmm. we put tons of money into rebuilding those countries. We opened up our financial markets. We provided a United States Navy that helped people transport goods so free markets were able to work and mm. what that did is it grew the economies of all those nations in an incredible way now again yeah. i'm not trying to say that it's perfect being optimistic doesn't mean that you ignore the problems it just means that the the people who are going to solve those problems are people who believe that you can 
solve those problems. They're optimistic people to begin with. But mm. again, look at that economy. It built something amazing. And if you look at the alternative economies during those periods of times, the Soviet Union and China, they were extremely depressed. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were very, very dark periods of time, not only where they took away civil rights and equal rights and human rights, but where their economies were doing poorly. Now, yeah. China only began to improve in about 1973 when Mao ended up going and meeting with uh, Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. He was able to get kind of the same concessions that that other partners that we had in this new world order were able to gain. And then later, Deng Xiaoping met with Jimmy Carter and actually began to open up their free markets and allow exchange back and forth with the United States. They went from a 2% growth to a 9% growth. Mm -hmm. And as you watch Xi today, Xi's going in the opposite direction today. He's taking those rights back away from people. He's beginning to take uh, property away from people. He's confiscating companies that he's upset with. And they're beginning to cut off world trade. They're, they're imprisoning people who in the private sector have done well. Why? Mm -hmm. Because the party can't stand the challenge from the private sector. And I can tell you, they're going to take their country backwards because of it. Mm -hmm. The world is getting better where free trade, free markets, democracy, free elections, human rights, civil rights, and equal rights all come into play. Because when, when we focus on the individual as opposed to government, it is amazing what the individual has the ability to conquer. Yeah. We're going to do amazing things over the upcoming decades, right? Exactly. We're going to create driverless cars. We're going mm -hmm. to cure cancer. We're going to, we're, we're starting to see where we may, may even extend human life, mm. but not happening because, not because of governments, but mm -hmm. because of individuals who have been empowered by the free market system, who've been empowered through democracies, who are being educated in places where we're able to put money back socially to help advance all of our people. Those individuals through private property ownership, through their own companies, through their own invention, through being able to own what it is that they create are going to do amazing things. And again, how do we know? We'll look back at the last 50 years and see what's happened. And then yeah. take a look at what's on the drawing board today. No, I'm mm -hmm. incredibly optimistic. I don't have any doubt that in the places where free markets and uh, free elections and civil rights, human rights and, and civil rights stay in place, the advancement for our people is going to be tremendous. Mm. Yeah, you remind me of a quote I had someone uh, say one day, and I believe in that quote very, very, very much. I, I hold it strongly within me. And this is what you are kind of portraying here. And someone who's listening or watching may go with this. And he, he said, uh, looking back, we've come from far. We've come this far. And definitely we are going far. So if you look back and look at uh, 1994 where, when you're mayor, this, what we are doing right now, using technology to uh, speak from different countries, different unbelievable. sides of the, it's unbelievable. You couldn't imagine that. And uh, that I can talk with, with you on a mobile uh, a smartphone uh, from wherever it is that you are. It's, it was unimaginable back then. So having come this far, then, I can only imagine how much far we can go. Yeah, you know, Anthony, the uh, I'm convinced that technology, mm -hmm. there are people who use it for, for bad things, but there are also yeah. people who are going to use it for good things. I've watched a number of your shows, and you have a positive message. 
Mm. Right? That's a, that's a counter narrative to mm -hmm. what most people get on their nightly news. They can't get good information by watching television anymore. Yeah. But what podcasts have done and people like yourself is it's given the ability to be able to spread a message that oftentimes you can't get through other platforms. And it's being given through people who generally they're optimistic. Otherwise, would they have, why would they have a show in the first place, right? What's, mm -hmm. You're trying to get information out to people. Mm -hmm. I, we wrote a book, it's called The Addictive Ideologies, and it's kind of the, the other side of this equation. What happens mm -hmm. when people end up not being able to, um, not being able to gain their own true sense of agency? So mm -hmm. what we saw is that I, I studied genocides around the world and uh, in Bosnia, in Rwanda, uh, China, other places, um, okay. as well as my partner who was an Iraqi Jew who uh, was persecuted, her family was persecuted by Saddam Hussein. They were terrorized by them, some were murdered, they had to basically escape. Mm -hmm. Well, when you start to take a look at what's the connection between genocide terrorism and extremist action, you can find that there are some commonalities and I'll give them to you. Here's the first commonality. Yeah. The first commonality is that they all buy into some type of ideology. Mm -hmm. The ideology that they buy in almost always has, the ones that become genocides, the ones that become violent, they almost always have an oppressed and an oppressor as part of their ideology. Meaning mm -hmm. they categorize people based upon the group that they're in as opposed to seeing them as individuals. Yeah. I, I, my, one of my heroes in American politics was a guy by the name of Reverend Martin Luther King. Mm. Reverend Martin Luther King once said to us, uh, he said, look, we, he looked forward to a day when we judge people not by the color of their skin, but mm. by the content of their character. Well, yeah. the right-wing ideologies tend to see things from a, a racial standpoint, and they're not judging people by mm. the the color of their skin. And in the US, we have kind of this arising woke culture that looks at, at, uh, uh, at things much based upon a race standpoint as well. They see, they talk about the white patriarchy. And again, here's the thing, we shouldn't be judging people based upon the color of their skin. We mm -hmm. ought to be judging them upon their own merits and their own ability to be able to achieve things. We should do all that we can to enable every mind to be able to resolve the problem. But mm -hmm. the third that happens in those ideologies is that they begin to become addictive because they service a need that some people have who have become victims, right? So if, as um, when someone feels that they've been harmed economically, socially, uh, that they've been ostracized or isolated, it is inevitable that someone comes along and tells them, hey, I see you. And when they tell them that I see you, and then they repeat to them the, the things that make them feel like a victim, they'll mm -hmm. follow that person oftentimes, regardless of what crime they commit, what terrible thing they say, it, it doesn't matter because they feel as if they've been seen. And once people get into that ideology, it becomes very difficult to break out. Mm. Now, what our book does is it talks about how do you help people who are actually already engaged in the ideology? How do you help them individually? And I won't go through the whole thing. I will tell you this is a key you're not going to change them by telling them that they're wrong. You're not gonna change them by giving them an alternative ideology or telling them why their facts aren't right. Mm -hmm. You have to connect to them. They, you, they have to like you, right? Mm -hmm. and, and once they feel that human connection, you're gonna have a much bigger influence at getting them to focus on other goals that they have in their life. But here's what's more important. What are the things that we can do as individuals to make our societies better? And there we laid out what we call the seven ideals. 
I'll just hit on a few of them very quickly. The okay. first, I'm taking notes. Okay. The yeah. first one is know the truth. Right? Know the truth. Know the truth means that you're only getting a very narrow picture and watching the nightly news or listening to politicians about what the world really looks like. You have to go out and seek to get what's going on from a from a good standpoint. And again, mm -hmm. there, trust the data. Look at the data, not the media. The second thing is each of us have to be accountable for ourselves. I love an individual by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn who wrote a book called The Gulag Archipelago, where he was a Russian that was in the Communist Party. He went and fought mm -hmm. against the Germans. He was put in a German prisoner of war camp. And when he got out, they put him in a gulag. Uh, Stalin put him into prison as well. Okay. When he went there, he could have easily have blamed Stalin and the Communist Party and everything else. But he said instead what he did is he began looking at what he had done wrong. Now, mm -hmm. he talked about the Russians moving out what were called the kulaks, which were poor farmers. They were considered to be rich farmers because they had one cow instead of zero cows, but they owned property. So the Russians went out, the communists went out and took their property away from them, distributed that back to the state, had other poor farmers work on the land so they could get the money. And then they took those landowners because they knew that they would be upset and moved them to Siberia. He moved 10,000 families, 60,000 people. They all died that way, right? In, in, the, in, the, in that portion of Russian history, they probably lost between 20 and 60 million people through the violence perpetrated on them by their government. But what he said was, look, when I was a communist, I bought into the idea that these property owners were evil. And he said, because ideology allowed me to take the evil that was inside of me and cast it on someone else. All of us have good and evil inside of us. And so does everyone else, right? If we, we have to be accountable for what we do. And when we insult other people or talk bad about other people or categorize other people as part of a group, or when we label other people, we're participating in the divisions that exist in our community. The third thing is helping yourself find meaning. You only find meaning in four areas. You find meaning in who or what you love, you find meaning in uh, in what you create, your art, your 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 job, your, your your the product that you create. You also find it in how you service other people, and finally, how you learn to deal with struggle. Mm -hmm. The uh, the last issue that I would tell you is important is the concept of love, and you know, love is an interesting word because you you're in Greece. The Greeks used to have seven words for love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and in our country, Martin Luther King turned it into three words. He said the first was romantic love. The second was philia, which was like brotherly love. Yeah. Uh, and as an example, Philadelphia was named after the city of brotherly love. And then the third one was agape, which is the ability to love other people that you may not even know. In fact, being able to love people who may you may even consider to be your enemies. Mm. That last category that is the most difficult but is the most beneficial to society. So he was dealing with the civil rights issues in the South when he would take a group of people, they would cross a bridge, they went to cross a very famous bridge, and they knew that the people when they went to cross it would shout epitaphs at them. He knew that they would call them names. He knew they may even try to hurt them. Mm. He convinced them. He said, we're not going to fight back in that same way. We're not gonna call them names. We're not gonna mm -hmm. yell. We're not going to create violence on them. One, because he said, then 
He says, if you do that, then the public won't know who's at fault. They'll say, well, they're both at fault because they're both doing something. Yeah. He said, importantly, there's no defense to love. And in the end, there wasn't. He created a massive change in the United States, the civil rights movement, and making certain that all people had a sense of having some uh, equal opportunity that they were entitled to came about because not only that movement, but because he started that movement with the concept of love. And, and I believe that is the single most important thing, which is how I get to saying, when you have someone else who you know is become engaged in maybe a more extreme ideology, you're not going to change their mind by showing them how their facts are wrong, even if mm. their facts are really wrong. You're going to change them by building a connection with them. Mm. Yeah, if someone said there are always three sides to a situation. There is your side, my side, and then there is the right side. So <laughs> I like that. If I come here and try to prove to you how wrong you are, and then you're going to defend yourself, and then there's going to be some more. So it's good that you encourage us to connect together through agape love, that the unconditional love, like the one that we talk about as Christians, that we are loved uh, with. So I love that. I love that. And and let's connect. Let's let, let the world get to know that, um, yes, there is hope. There's hope. There is hope. And yeah. it's a, you know, it's, again, it's, it's dependent upon ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Victor Frankl, who uh, went to Auschwitz, um, I love his story. He, he was a psychologist. He had helped yeah. people deal with uh, suicide. He'd had, he, I think it was in Vienna and the suicide rate was like 300 people a year. And he was able to knock it down to almost nothing. But the Nazis came in and they took him and his family into Auschwitz. He mm -hmm. said that when they went in, they took nine people to the left and one to the right. And he was the one that they took to the right. They took the rest of his family to the left. He said, I thought for sure they, that I was going to be dead. That's why they took me because I was the male. Mm -hmm. he had no, knowing his family would be dead within hours and he was going to be put into a work camp. Now this work camp, the Germans were so brutal to people that they went down, many of the men went down to 70, 80, 90 pounds. They were on the edge of life. In fact, he said one individual who just believed that they were gonna be saved by some date, I think it was March 27th. He said that for weeks he was preparing and getting things ready and was just so convinced they were going to be saved. But he said on March 27th, five minutes after midnight, he died, right? Mm. Because he realized he wasn't going to be. That, that's how fine the line was that they hung on to life. Mm. He convinced other people uh, that he was with that the thing that they wanted to do was to watch the sunset at when it was was setting at night. Now that meant you had to work. You had to be out in the field, mm. right? And the Germans couldn't know that you were doing it. But he said that they would work and watch the sunset. And he said, when you're watching it, I want you to think about other people throughout the world and the lives they're living and people that you know and where hope may exist and how we're all kind of watching the same sunset. And then they would go back to the bunkers and they would talk about it in their sleep. They learned to love that sunset. Right? It gave them a sense of meaning and purpose in their life, mm -hmm. recognizing that the suffering that they were going through, that there were other places in the world where that wasn't happening, and maybe they could get there. All of us, I think, have to recognize that, that this is about our free will. It is our free will to decide that everything that's going on around us is terrible and that it's never going to get better. That is the pessimistic point of view. The Greeks, again, invented yeah. the 
pessimism versus optimism. The pessimists believed that there was no world order, that there was no universal order, there was no truth, that mm. everything chaos. And even though we may get a, a respite from that by some period of time where we create some order, it was all going to go back to chaos. But the optimists were the people who believed that there was an order bigger than us, that there was something else that we belonged to where order actually existed, that there was an intelligent design mm. to what we have. And that can give you faith. That can give you a belief that even though we may have dark hours, that it's up to us and our free will to be able to, to, to buy into the optimism that, that exists inside the universe. Mm. And the challenges that exist all around us, uh, we have many challenges that are caused by us, the human uh, beings, whatever it is that we are. That I, I want to take where the place where you are. I want to kick you out and take over. I want to own much more than you own or something like that. And then there are those things that we can, we, it's not we who start like the natural disasters. And like now we have um, climate change. Okay, maybe we have a contribution on that. But then if now people, because we have people who are going through some tough times, they, are, they can't find something to eat on a daily basis. So how do we handle this? Something that is being, done against us, but then I can't point someone and say, you are the one who caused this. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that if you start with trying to figure out who's to blame, mm -hmm. uh, you're already in a challenge point of view. For mm -hmm. Most of the problems that have been created by men can be solved by men. There are mm -hmm. some problems that are, that are not created by mankind, and we're going to have a much harder time solving them. But mm -hmm. the ones that we create, we can have a hand in fixing them. Now, mm -hmm. it, ha it starts with this, the belief that you can. I, there's no pessimist that's going to fix any problem. They, mm -hmm. they may do a good job of pointing out the problems, but they're not going to mm -hmm. fix anything because mm -hmm. they don't believe that you can fix them. The optimist sees the problem, right? They, they, they recognize that they exist. They don't ignore them. Yeah. And then work at trying to come up with solutions to them. Now, the second thing I would tell you is it's we, not me. When you blame one other person for it or one other group for it, your odds of fixing it go through the floor. Mm. The way to fix it is that we inspire other people to recognize that we have a greater obligation to something more than just ourselves. Now, there are lots of ways to contribute to that. You know, one way is you can take part in not-for-profit organizations, or two, you can do it through ind individual charity. But I would argue even business people can give a lot back, right? People think about Steve Jobs, who helped invent the cell phone. Yeah. I think he did a tremendous amount for society. He connected people all over the world so that, that regardless of where you live, even in sub-Sahara Africa, you can have a cell phone and mm. connect back into the marketplace and sell things and buy things and have access to information that you never had before. He too was giving a contribution back. I think sometimes we think it's about money, and in and, and my experience, it's not. You know, I, I like the story of the leader. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I try to tell people that I mentor and help hear this story all the time. Which one of these two do you think is the leader? Here's person A. Person A uh, is the guy who goes out and he's a great hunter. And he brings back the single biggest buffalo and he eats it by himself. Cuts it up, stores it, does everything, and he keeps it for himself. 
And the other guy catches a buffalo. Maybe it's not as big a buffalo. Maybe it's not big a, a game, but he brings it back and he shares and he gives it to people who are poor and the, to the elderly and to children first, right? He spreads it out. Which one of those two do you think in a democratic type system they're going to elect as their leader? It's always B, Ooh. all right? It's the person who's giving back, who yeah. recognizes that he's part of something bigger. We're mm -hmm. all part of something bigger. But again, the way to get that isn't by blaming the leader. It isn't by blaming capitalists. It's mm -hmm. by trying to inspire people to do better, to make cert making certain that they do understand the challenges, but also believing that we can fix them if we all just decide to take part. Wow. Now, let's go to this hot topic that is in the airwaves right now. And I want to hear it from, a, from a, an optimistic point of view. AI, because we said we are moving into the future at a terrific speed. W what's your idea of AI? That's the talk of the town in the last few months. So um, in my experience, um, I'm 63. Mm -hmm. In my entire life, I have been lifted listening to people with apocryphal views of what was going to happen. You know, mm -hmm. back in the 1960s, there was a guy who said, um, who wrote a great book, and it was a book that was read worldwide that said we could never have more than 6 million people, that the fact that we were going to keep growing was going to cause one third of the world to starve, it was going to cause dramatic problems, and we can't get to 7 billion. Well, how did we get to 7 billion? We got to 7 billion because we found other ways to grow crops with less land, with less water, with, uh, with more nutrients. I mean, we improved upon the ability to feed more people on the planet with less resources. The mayor of New York, the biggest, one of the bigger cities in the world, he once said you could never have more than a million people in New York. He said, because where would you put all the horses, right? Mm -hmm. Things change. Technology changes. I imagine the farmer. The farmer who uh, saw the very first combine, you know, in the United States, I, I like this comparison. In China, today, one in three people work in agriculture, one mm -hmm. in three, and they're the largest importer of food in the world. But in the United States, less than 1% of our population works in agriculture, and mm -hmm. we're the exporter of food. How? Technology, right? But imagine that farmer who saw the first combine in the United States that was cutting these crops and realizing thousands of people were going to be put out of work. And they were. They were going to be put out yeah. of work. Yeah. He thought it was going to decimate the economy because mm -hmm. the only economy he could think about was the one that he was involved with, which was agriculture. Mm -hmm. That's not what happened. They moved to cities. They got retrained. They were educated. And over time, they started to work in television and radio and a whole wide variety of other technologies. AI technology, I'm, I'm sure there are some risks and some, I'm, I'm in the technology company, so I know that there are some risks to it. But mm. overwhelmingly, the benefits that are going to be given to society are going to be better. And it's not going to cost you your job. It's going to create new jobs. Mm. My view of it is this, if you've used ChatGPT, you can use ChatGPT on your cell phone in Sub-Sahara Africa, as I said a moment ago, and yeah. you can create content almost as good as the content I can create in the United States with some of the best people working in it, right? Now, you could argue, well, that cost that person in the United States their job. 
Not necessarily. They still have to know how to ask the right questions. They still have to know how to be able to think about where you're going as a group, what it is that you're doing. But more importantly, it's going to create better product in other places that oftentimes didn't have as good a product. I think it's going to lift all of us up as opposed to suppressing, uh, as opposed to suppressing us. And again, why? Because that's what the evidence shows me. The evidence shows me that time after time, when we have these apocryphal views about how technology is going to destroy us, it doesn't destroy us. It makes us better. The only evidence that we have, the only evidence that we have is it's going to make it better. Now, you could speculate that it's going to make it worse without data, without information, without any past example to prove where that's true. You could just say, well, I, I can think this through better than other people can, and I think it's going to get worse. Well, I, I can't stop you from thinking that. Mm. What I can tell you is there's no evidence of that. There just is no evidence of that. The evidence in our history says that technology has continually made it better. That doesn't mean it's perfect, right? Even on things like our podcast, there are people out there doing podcasts on things that I wish they weren't doing podcasts on. Mm-hmm. but they have the freedom to choose and other people have the freedom to choose it. And then there are people like you, Anthony, who say, no, no, I'm going to put out a different message. I'm mm-hmm. going to put out a message of hope. Yeah. Listening to an optimist, tell us about <laughs> the future of AI. Now, for those who have jo- joined us as we've been going uh, on, we are listening to Honorable Paul Johnson, He's been telling us that the world is actually a better place than we can imagine. And uh, he's got the experience to just tell us, yeah, let's expect better things ahead. Don't be frightened. Don't be scared. There are better things ahead. Now, uh, there is a book that we encourage you to go and take and read. is known as Addictive Ideologies, Finding Meaning and Agency When Politics Fail You by, yeah, Dr. Emily Bashan and the Honorable Paul Johnson himself. And um, if people would want to connect with you, because we are almost coming to the end of this show, how can they connect with you? Um, Well, first, they can watch our podcast. Our podcast is called The Optimistic American, which are on all platforms. Mm -hmm. They can email us if they would like at paul at optimistic optamerican.com or go onto our website. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, any, either of those are uh, possible. And you know, here's the last thing that I'd just like to say uh, for your show. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, there's no doubt in my mind that the world has gotten better. All, all the evidence and the data shows that. There's yeah. also no doubt in my mind that the United States is in an incredible position, that our ability to be able to advance forward, both in technology and our economy and our military, it's unprecedented what you're seeing here in the United States. But I would tell you that the single greatest gift that Western democracy gave to people is that a long time ago, we decided that that government decided that it was going to empower the individual over itself. This really, at the end of the day, only works. The only reason any of us have all the benefits that we have today is because we've empowered those individuals to create and to innovate and to be hopeful. I believe the single most important gift that we can give back to future generations is the belief in themselves, to recognize that it's we, not me, 
and mm -hmm. to believe that there is a future that's hopeful and that if they want to take part in it, they can benefit from it. Mm. It's we, not me. <laughs> and that's the only way that we can continue to make the world a better place. Think of us, not myself. Thank you very much, Honorable Paul Johnson. We, we really appreciate you sharing everything that you've shared with us on this episode. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, and uh, we've come to the end of today's show. It has been a wonderful show today. Uh, thanks to, uh, yeah, do you want to say something before, the last, last thing before we end it? <laughs> oh, no, I was just saying thank you. That was all. Okay. okay, so, yeah, thank you. And all the viewers who are out there, we thank you too. And the listeners, we also thank you. If you get to listen to it after we are through, we also thank you for taking your time and listening. Everyone out there, please remember to share this episode with your friends. We need to encourage one another towards uh, positivity, towards looking at creating a better place, a better world all over. Thank you very much. That's about it. This has been Now Tell Us. I've been your host, Anthony Murore. And together with our guest today, Honorable Paul Johnson, we are saying bye for now. Bye.